You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn J-Town. In this series, we're following Jesus as He calls us to take on His yoke so that we might experience true flourishing. You guys can find a seat. My name's Zach. I'm one of the pastors here. If we have not met, um, if we don't know each other, um, it's either for, because we forgot or we don't, actually, because I'm new here. So um, new-ish. I was here before, and I prodigaled for a few years in the Holy Spirit, and the elders brought me back. So um, it's good to be with you guys today. Um, if you got a Bible, go ahead and move your way toward the book of Matthew. We're still in a series in Matthew. We're going to be in chapter 23, verses 13 through 36. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's one probably under the seat in front of you. It'll also be on the screen. Um, just a reminder that uh, one of the ways, one of the primary ways we get to do this on Sunday morning, we do ministry, we do things regarding the church is because of your generosity. So we just want to say to you, thank you. Thank you for your just gracious, supernatural, spirit-filled generosity. And because of your open hands with your resources, we're able to do ministry. We're able to gather. We're able to turn these lights on. And I just want to thank you. I just want to give you a quick update. If you look on the screen, we have an update of what our giving was. If you see that second week there, according to most of our staff, we believe that's the highest giving Sunday in the history of Sojourn J-Town. So I just want to thank you for your generosity. You can give yourself a round of applause. It's not not prideful to give yourself a pat on the back once in a while. I just want to thank you. We are doing a really good job budget, but it, it, we need our continually, continued support and generosity. And in a reminder that we don't give because God will love us more. We give, we open our hands to our resources, but God, because God has loved us and he owns it all. So just a reminder, if you have a physical gift, there's boxes in the back, but you can share our platforms for giving on the screen. If you want more information, updates financially or updates about our ministry or just general things when it comes to our family body, we have a members meeting this Wednesday night at 6.30 here in this room. I encourage you to gather. For those of you online, there will be an online option. So be checking your emails this week for a link to our online option for our members meeting. Really encourage you, if you're a part, if you call this place your church, you've committed and went through the membership process at this church, this is your family, strongly encourage you to commit to this Wednesday night to be a part of installing new members, celebrating what God is doing in our church, and just hear a couple updates um, as we move forward as a church. All righty, right, Matthew 23. We'll start reading. I'm just going to read a few verses. Um, Then we'll dive in. Hear the word of the Lord. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You shut the door of the kingdom in people's faces. For you do not go in, and you don't allow those entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees! You travel over land and sea to make one convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as fit for hell as you are. Lyle well, introduced a new method to respond to God's word last week, and I just want to reiterate this, abs- this, this beautiful truth, and you respond with thanks be to God. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true. You need to hear that this morning. This is absolutely true. You also need to hear, it's given to you in love. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, I'm, gl- I'm so glad to be 
a people of your book. And we don't get to just pick and choose what we want to hear from you. And Lord, this is a tough text, so Lord, we're, we're coming by faith asking you to speak to us, even though it might hurt. We, we ask for you to open our eyes this morning. Praise in Christ's name. Amen. So those of you that know me, or maybe you have contact, you're able to do contact clues really big, really good. Um, I spent most of my life playing a sport, and that wasn't badminton or tennis. I spent most of my life playing the game of football. And this game, I loved it. It came with receipts. <laughs> this game had a decent career, probably a short career due to talent or injuries, mostly blaming on injuries, not on talent. And those injuries took a toll. Almost every year of my, my football career was a major injury. And some of those years I was hurt and had, a, had an injury and went to the doctor and got misdiagnosed. I can remember one time in high school, I broke my ankle and I went to the doctor and I just went to like a, just a regular practitioner. They didn't do an x-ray, they didn't do a scan. And they looked at my ankle, it was swollen and said, we think you got a light sprain. Well, the problem was I had a broken ankle. And so I just iced it for a few weeks and I played the rest of my season with a broke ankle and it swelled up huge every single day. And I was limping along the whole season. I wasn't able to heal, to flourish until I actually got a proper diagnosis, until I got a proper scan, until I got a proper doctor. This text this morning serves as a proper scan. This text is going to expose us this morning. So Lyle last week talked about the Bible as a mirror, and that it's true. It is a mirror. But sometimes the challenge of mirrors is you're not able to see what's actually in the mirror. We need more than a mirror. We need the Bible to be more than a mirror sometimes. We need it to be an MRI. We need, need it to see things that we are unable to see. We need to tell us things that we're unable to know by ourselves. And this morning, Lau gave me this super light and fluffy text for you guys. And it's going to examine us. It's, it's going to expose us. And I just want to come this morning, just even including myself, can we just be willing to be examined this morning? Can we be willing to be told the truth? Can we be willing this morning to be exposed, to be seen, to have the truth told to us? This morning, if we're willing to do that, if we're willing to open our hands and say, Lord, I'm willing. I'm willing for you to tell me the truth this morning. Here's what the invitation is. This text is inviting us to see and to kill our self-righteousness so we may walk in flourishing. This text is inviting us, Jesus is inviting us to see and to kill our self-righteousness so we may walk into flourishing. And like a doctor, when he walks through the triage, he asks you questions. This morning, I think this text, through these seven woes, he just gives, he just gives offers seven woes. I want to ask five diagnostic questions of our self-righteousness. I want to ask five questions this morning that examine our hearts, examine our lives. So we may live, not so that we may be guilty, not so that we may walk in shame, so that we may live.
First question. Do we hinder people from life with God? Do we hinder people from life with God? Look at verse 13 in your Bibles with me. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you don't go in and you don't allow others from entering in. Jesus' first rebuke to these, these Pharisees and scribes is that you, you hinder people from life with God. The kingdom of God is life with God under the rule and reign of God. So to enter into the kingdom is to have life with God. And these Pharisees, according to Jesus, were hindering people from entering life with God. How are they doing that? Well, they create these Pharisaical laws beyond the Mosaic law that added on to law, these rules and obligations. It's like you have to do 1,700 things just to get to the first step. You do these rituals, you do these rules. These hindering people, these Pharisees, were hindering people from even getting to the presence of God. They hindered people from entering the kingdom of heaven to their hypocrisy. They would say the Mosaic law is the law of God. They would pound their, their desk and say the Mosaic law, the Mosaic law, but they picked and choose what part of the Mosaic law they wanted to obey. So the watching world looked at that and said, wait, 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 wait. Why would I want to be a part of what you believe when you don't actually believe what you believe? You're hypocrites. You're blind guides. They hinder people from life with God by actually rejecting God himself. So if Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, he is the kingdom of God. He is the entrance to the kingdom of God. Their rejection of Jesus was hindering people to have life with God. They're rejecting Jesus. is hindering people to have life with God. They're stopping people from seeing and savoring, seeing and be amazed by the entrance to the kingdom. And what's beautiful about what Jesus is saying is their hindrance to the kingdom of God is actually going to advance the kingdom of God. What do I mean? I can't help but think of the story of Joseph in Genesis' story. Joseph had brothers, and his brothers rejected him and sold him to Egypt. He, he's in Egypt, and he grows in authority in Egypt. And their rejection of Joseph sent him to Egypt to grow in his rankings so that one day he would provide for his brothers during a famine. Joseph went to Egypt. He grew in authority. He grew in stature. He became a leading figure in the Egyptian political realm. And one day his brothers have a need because of the famine. And who do they go to? Jesus. The Jewish leader's rejection of Jesus would actually lead to the death of Jesus. And the death of Jesus would lead to the entrance to the kingdom for all of us. So they think they're hindering people from the kingdom of God. They're actually creating the doorway for me and you to be a part of the kingdom of God. So the before we think this is, us, this is not us, let's ask the question. Do we hinder people from, from life with God? It wasn't just their rules, though. They, they would make converts, and then they would disciple them poorly. Look at verse 15. 
Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to make one convert, but when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a child of hell as you are. And Jesus isn't pulling any punches in this text. He says, you hinder people from the life of God, and when you think you brought them into the life of God, you make them a child of hell. So not only are they converting them to something different, when they convert them, they're introducing to Jesus or God that's foreign to the people of Israel. Is, is this us? Are we baptizing people and telling them good luck? Are we, are we offering our lives as a way for people to see the life with God? Are we writing people off in saying statements like, I don't think they would ever walk in the door of a church? Do we have this image of what a Christian is? And if this person doesn't fit it, we don't even invite them in our homes. Do we have biases with under our motives, underneath our, our actions that, that doesn't even offer the love of God to people? Here's our heart as a church. Our desire is for anybody that walks in that door, anybody that comes into our church, no matter what story they have, no matter what race they are, no matter what sins they've committed, no matter what their story is, no matter what their background is, no matter what their culture is, no matter how many sins they committed last week, they are invited to the grace of God. And we want to eliminate any barrier within biblical orthodoxy that welcomes that invitation. Is that us? Do we hinder people from life with God? I, I pray we break down those barriers. We break down our rules so that we remember the goal of this gathering, the goal of our lives is to introduce people to the creator of the universe. Well, first question to be examined with, do we hinder people from life with God? Second question, have we forgotten what is sacred? Look at verse 16. Woe to you blind guides who say, whoever takes an oath by the temple, it means nothing. But whoever takes an oath by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath or his oath. This may sound weird. Jesus actually rebukes the, even the whole taking of oath in Matthew chapter 5. But here's what Jesus is getting at. Here's what these Jewish, Jewish leaders have done. They've had all these traditions. They have all these practices. And they've confused the goal of the practices. So they have two examples he gives. is the oath by the temple and the oath by the gold of the temple. And Jesus is saying, the, for you, the oath by the temple, you're not bound by that. That's according to you. But your oath by the gold of the temple, you, you hold people accountable to that. The problem is the gold isn't sacred. The temple is. The temple is what makes the gold sacred. You've been doing this so long, guys, that you've made this gold the goal, and you've forgotten the goal of the temple. The temple is what's holy. The gold is not. Here's what that looks like for us. 
is when we make methods and traditions into orthodoxy or, or sacred. And that was never the goal. The goal is life with God. The goal is the glory of God. You probably heard this illustration because every preacher that ever preached has used this illustration. But there's a story of a mom helping her uh, mom, her daughter helping her mom make Thanksgiving ham. They're making it, and she gets it ready, and she cuts the ends off the ham. She puts it in the baking pan, the roasting pan. She puts it in the oven, and the daughter asks, why don't you cut the ends off? It cooks better that way. If it's the way we've always done it. We, we found that recipe to be most helpful. But why? As kids ask, why did you do it that way? Well, that's just the way we've always done it, honey. Like, why, why are you asking all these questions? We cut the ends off the ham. It's what we do. Can we call grandma and see actually why we do it this way? Sure, let's do it. And say, so call grandma. And grandma says, well, this is the way we've always done it. Why, why don't we do it anywhere else? This is the family recipe. So can we call great-grandmother? Sure, let's call great-mother. Let's see what she says. She's going to say the same thing. Let's see what she says. They call their great-grandma, and she answers the phone, and they ask her about the ham. Why don't they cut, why don't you, grandma, why don't you cut the ends off the ham? So she says, y'all still do that? I only cut the ends off the ham because I didn't have a big enough pan. And sometimes we do that with church. We actually forget the goal of our methods and make the methods the goal. Friends, fundamentalists don't own the market on legalism. Legalism is a part of us before we ever met Jesus, and we need to know that it's in us. When we meet Jesus, it didn't stop at the door. Legalism is in our, in our broken nature, and we bring it to everything we do. There's not this some 100% pure motive to everything we do. It's a part of who we are, and we need to, to root that out of us constantly. But even as a church... We're tempted to act like these scribes and Pharisees by making our methods the goal and not the glory of God the goal. So here's, here's what that looks like sometimes for us. If a church doesn't do liturgical worship, they're dumb. They're not even a real church. They listen to Caleb, barely even a Christian. I mean, if you do Sunday school... You're basically like the Pharisee's nephew. And we make all these stances on, legal, on, on, on the way you should do things, and all of a sudden we alienated a whole group of people based on a method, not on the glory of Jesus. So I ask us, what's that for us? What part of, what culture, what method, what thing in your life have you made sacred that God has not made sacred? What part of your life have you made sacred that God has not made sacred? Part of the reason we do this is we haven't triaged our beliefs. We make all our beliefs kind of on one level of importance. And what, what we need to do is triage our beliefs to have a system and say, okay, what's essential? What do you need to believe to be a Christian? For me to call you a Christian, for us to call ourselves Christian, what do we need to believe? When you have convictions, 
is what we think the Bible is true and what we believe it should be expressed like here. And preferences are things we believe but we could be wrong about. So essentials being like the deity of Jesus and the Trinity and the need for faith to be saved by grace. The, the convictions is baptism. We believe that baptism comes after you become a believer and we believe you should be dunked to be, a believe, to be baptized. That's a conviction. People disagree with that. Presbyterians, we love you. We disagree on that. We have different churches. That's what convictions separate denominations. And you have preferences. This is like your, your, your guy who thinks he knows the exact date that Jesus can come back. He holds it real tight. He's making a preference and essential. Anybody, side note, if anybody tells you they know exactly when Jesus comes back, like run the opposite direction, it's, they don't. And what happens in legalism is we make preferences essential. And then what happens in liberalism is we make essentials preferences. We need to know what to hold like this and what to hold like this. Because if we hold our way of church like this, our way of doing different things in our life like this, we hold our culture like this, what we're doing is we're hindering people with life of God. We're actually making judgments about people that do life differently than us. Have we forgotten what is sacred? Third question. Do we choose what parts of the Bible we want to obey? Look at verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You pay a tenth of mint, dill, and cumin, and yet you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. I mean, these Jewish leaders are people of the book. They, they have a much of it memorized. They would, they would say they are people who obey the law. The problem is, according to Jesus, they were choosing what parts they think were important. They were choosing, not just important, what parts they needed to obey. I don't think we have to stretch anything for us to admit this is a temptation. We're tempted to highlight one area of the Bible at the neglect of another area of the Bible. Where because of our story, we need to know, like, none of us open our Bible and think, yeah, I'm purely getting my interpretation strictly from the Bible. No, your, your whole story, your whole life has an influence in your lens in which you see the world and your Bible. The goal is for that not to be the case, but it happens. And all of a sudden, we're reading the Bible through this lens of values and importance. And you choose which section of the Bible is important to you and not important to you. And we're tempted with this all the time. So we highlight certain things and we devalue certain things. And the Bible calls us to a centered and a, and a gravity to what we believe. We want to believe the whole Bible, not just some of the Bible. So here's some examples. If we scream about tulip, and if you don't know what tulip is, you're perfectly fine. If you scream about tulip, but you're silent about gossip, Jesus says, whoa. 
If we argue for a biblical sexual ethic, but we're silent about abuse, Jesus says to us, whoa. If we, if we talk a lot about divorce, but we've pressed eject on most of our relationships, Jesus says to us, whoa. Let's be honest and say all of us have areas that that's true of us, even including me. And our heart isn't to do that, but we do. Be honest, it's the time for us to be honest with the Lord and honest with ourselves. What, do, what have I emphasized at the detriment of other things God values? These Pharisees chose the things to emphasize that served them but neglected justice, mercy, faithfulness. May we wean that out of our church, of our lives. Do we choose what parts of the Bible we think or obey, we choose to obey? Fourth question. Do we care about being seen as godly more than actually being holy before God. We care more about being seen as godly to others than actually being holy before God. Look at verse 25 and verse 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they, they are full of greed and self-indulgence. 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You're like whitewashed tombs which appear beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones of the dead and every kind of impurity. If your picture of Jesus was some really nice dude that told, said really nice things, this text just ruined you. He, he's calling these guys names. If you're trying to teach your kid not to call people names, this is not the passage today. Like these, he's calling them names. He's telling them they're whitewashed tombs. He's telling them they, they care about the outside of the cup, but they don't care about what's in the cup. And this is, this is the lifestyle of the, the, the religious leader in the day. This is the lifestyle of some of us. We're tempted with this constantly. We want people to be impressed with our godliness, which seems counterintuitive, right? My God is awesome, but I'm also awesome. Look at how awesome I think my God's awesome. And these religious leaders didn't even have Instagram. We're constantly tempted by the inner pilot light of ego in our hearts to think that we should impress people. Just to be honest, guys, this is a constant pressure for me, for a pastor. Like, my job is to be godly. Think about this. I, I am paid by you guys partially to be godly. And if I'm not godly, you guys should fire me. It's part of the qualifications of being the jo- having the job I have. So the temptation to impress you with my godliness is constant. And I'd be, I'd be really tempted to actually not care about holiness and to not care about my nearness to God, but your 
your impression of my nearness to God. And in, in that temptation, I've come up with a few statements that have helped my soul recenter. I think they'd be helpful for you guys. These are three truths to remember when tempted with the impression of godliness and actually not the holiness of God. Yeah, I, think they're, I think there's a slide for it. Th- these three truths. God loves me. I have no one higher to impress. God loves me and I have no one higher to impress. God's opinion of me is greater than any, any person's opinion of me. I have nobody higher to impress than God. Holiness before God is better than anything in life. The good life is found in the nearness we have to God. If we think God, the creator of the world, is the source of joy and the source of life, then I want to get near to him as possible. And the only way to do that is to fight my sin and draw near to him. Holiness is the pursuit of nearness to God. And to do that, it hurts. To do that, it's you got to be honest with yourself. To do that, you got to take some shots. To do that, you might not need to be impressive. But I, from reading my Bible and even my experience, the greatest joy is found in my nearness to God. And I have to believe that because I'm tempted to believe my greatest joy is found when people like me more. Holiness before God is better than anything in life. And this third one, my honesty before others is a fruit of my holiness before God. My honesty before others is fruit of my holiness to God. Because when I draw near to God, I feel a safety and security that I can be honest before others with where I am. And I can tell you, I cannot fear fear of talking in my community group about the stupidest fight I had yesterday with my wife. I can talk about how I yelled at my kid. I can talk about my temptations with pride and lust because I know the goal isn't just to be moral. The goal is to be near to God. And that is one of the means God provides us to draw near to him. Cling to those truths in fighting the temptation to be appearing as godly without actually being godly. Fifth and final question. Are we actually children of God? Look at verse 29 in your Bibles. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say... If we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we wouldn't have taken part with the shedding of the prophet's blood. So you testify against yourself that you are the descendants of those who killed prophets. Here's what the the religious leaders are saying. They're saying, man, if we were there in that day, we wouldn't have killed the prophets. And they're assuming that they are on the prophet's team. Later in this, a couple more verses down, Jesus, what Jesus calls them, brood of vipers and snakes. And Jesus is actually not just calling them names, he's making an argument. In the story of redemption, there's basically two sides. There's enemies of God 
and the people of God, or the descendants of Eve and the descendants of the serpent. Genesis 3.15, Adam and Eve just were tempted by the serpent and they fall prey to the serpent. They, they bite the fruit and God curses them. He punishes them. He punishes Adam and he punishes Eve. Then he looks at the serpent, Satan. He says this to him in Genesis 3.15. I'll put enmity, war, I'll put war between your offspring and her offspring. You shall bruise his heel and he will crush your head. In that statement, he is saying there's two sides. There's the people that are descendants of Eve, and there's the people that are descendants of the serpent. And this is a theme of the Bible. You go to Abraham, he says, God says to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. Two sides. You go to the Mosaic Exodus, and you have this people of Egypt that enslaved the Jewish people, and on their chest plate was the image of this serpent. And throughout redemption history, you see this theme of people of God versus the people of Satan. And what the Pharisaic people, the, the religious leaders, they know this. They've read the book. They haven't memorized. They know the storyline. They know the narrative. And they're assuming the whole time we are descendants of Eve. And when Jesus calls them snakes, and when he calls them children of vipers, he said, you're assuming that you're descendants of Eve. You're assume, assuming you're the people of God. But you're actually the descendants of Satan. And you're actually about to prove it. He's going to improve it by being the people who bruise the heel of Jesus. Because days after this, they're going to put Jesus on trial. They're going to spit in his face. And they're going to hand him over to the Roman rulers. And that Jesus, the, the true descendant of Eve, is going to be nailed to a cross. And his heel we bruised. His heel was bruised because he wasn't dead. He wasn't crushed because he rose on the third day. In their actions of killing Jesus, they are testifying, we're not children of Eve, we are children of Satan. So here's a question. Are you a child of God? Or maybe a better question. Are you like the Pharisees and the scribes who thought their actions for God made them children of God? Are you confusing, like these religious leaders, your proximity to godly things to actually having a godly life? Are you a child of God? Are you thinking you're a child of God based on your religious activity? Have you put your faith in the crucified Savior, King Jesus, and not in your times you show up for church or the times you show up for group or the times you spend over coffee with another Christian, the times you've read your Bible or the amount of Bible memorization you have, that all that stuff is not bad, but that stuff is a bad faith. It's a bad object for your faith. Jesus invites you to life with him, not with life with activities for him. Are you a child of God? Matthew 7, Jesus looks at the people and says, many on that day, on the day of judgment, many will come to me and say, I did this in your name. I prophesied in your name. I served in your name. I did this for your name. And he said to them, Jesus, depart from me. I never knew you. 
And we'll ask the question, do you have a relationship with God? Do you, have you put your faith in Jesus? Today would be an awesome day for you to do that, to turn from yourself, your dependence, your self-reliance, and turn to the inviting Savior of the world. You might say, Zach, I don't know if I want to be in a relationship with Jesus. He calls these people names. He calls me names. This morning, I want you to hear, not just hear the words of Jesus, but hear the heart of Jesus. Look at verse 37. He says, he gives all these rebukes, and then he says this. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who, sent to her, who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gather her, gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. See, your house is left to your desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Think about that imagery that Jesus offers. I want to gather you. I've longed to gather you like a, a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. He could use any illustration, any imagery in the world, but he chose this tender, caring, motherly care for his people. His goal isn't for you to see and kill your self-righteousness. His goal is to have life with you. He knows to see and kill are the medicines. This morning, he wants to gather you. This morning, you're convicted of your self-righteousness. He wants to gather you. This morning, if you're here and you're feeling guilty for all the stuff you've done this week, he wants to gather you because he loves you. He's about to go to the cross. He's about to die for all the things you've committed. He's inviting you back this morning. The invitation this morning, if you'll accept it, if I'll accept it, if we'll accept it, to see and to kill our self-righteousness so that we can walk into flourishing, walk into life with God. Let's pray. Father, we need to see, so help us see. Well, thank you for continuing to invite us back. You've, you're not stiff-arming us this morning. You're not hovering over us. You're not pushing us out. You tell us what we don't want to hear with an arm extended as an invitation, not as a rejection. May we believe that this morning? Help us, Lord, because we are sinners. We need deep, deep grace. Pray this in your beautiful son's name. Amen. So the night Jesus was portrayed, he took a cup. Just after this scene, he's sitting around with a bunch of self-righteous disciples. He looks at every one of them and he asks them to bring this cup out. He broke a he took a piece of bread. So if you want to, I want to invite you this morning to open that first film, take the, take the cracker. And when Jesus opened that bread, he broke it. He looked at his disciples 
Remember this. Take this meal and remember this. Because my body is about to be killed. My body is about to be broken for you. Take this in remembrance of that. Then he took a cup. And this is in remembrance of my blood that I'm going to shed for all of your self-righteousness, all of your ego, all of your, your, your thinking that you're better than everybody. Remember this blood that was shed for every single one of those sins. And may we long for him to return as we take this. So as we stand and sing of the goodness of the Lord, let's remember that truth that this Bible is absolutely true, but the God, the Father who wrote the Bible loves you and he's inviting you back. Hey, I'm Lyle Drury and the lead pastor at Sojourn Church, J-Town. Thanks for listening. We are here to reach people with the gospel, build them up as a church, and send them into the world to be a faithful, loving presence. For more sermons, info about our church, or ways you can support our ministry, visit sojournchurch.com slash jtown.